Welcome to our series on the book of Hebrews. In this study, lead pastor Tim Brooks and associate pastor Paul Kern will be sharing life-impacting truths. The Gospels reveal what Jesus did on earth. But now that Jesus has resurrected from the dead and entered into heaven, what does he do? What role does he play? And how does that affect our lives today? These questions and more will be explored in this informative and revealing 10-part series. Now, join lead pastor Tim Brooks. That's going to be a good night. Uh, Before I get started, just um, very quick, uh, as Paul was saying, next Wednesday, Paul will finish us. And then the next Wednesday is the night before Thanksgiving. So we won't have Wednesday night church the night before Thanksgiving. Then the next Wednesday, the first Wednesday after Thanksgiving, that's when my mom is going to start the three-part series on the tabernacle. She and I were talking about it today, and you need to make sure you're going to be here for all three of those. It's, it's going to be fantastic. Well, are you ready to get started? Turn to chapter 12. Welcome you to lesson nine. This is one of the most stirring passages in the Bible. Uh, this section that we want to look at in this lesson is written for the purpose of stirring us to run and to keep on running in the race of life. It, it's very it's stirring in that it's, it's um, I don't know, it's like a coach's pregame talk. About, I mean, get hard. Here we go. We're going, we're going to go do this. Uh, it, it's easy to start. And it's always easy to start. It's easy to start a marriage, easy to start a new business. I mean, starting is no big deal. Everybody gets all excited about starting. Anybody can start. It's just real hard to finish. Finishing is a different story. And, and we've got a lot of starters, but very few finishers. And that's what this is motivating us to do. What is this race? The Bible talks over and over and over throughout Scripture about the race what is it that, that the Bible is referring to when he talks about the race? Um, it, you know, often it is the race for heaven. It is the race for abundant life here on earth. It is the race for perfection. It is the, the race toward living in the promised land. It is the race to just know God in a more intimate way. Both the Greeks and the Romans at this period in history, were very, very interested in athletic contest, not only just for their own physical well-being, but for the honor of their country. And like we get all hyped up for the Olympics and our country's competing against other countries, let me just tell you, this was a big deal even during the Greek and the Roman time. The competition between countries was, was huge. And, and it was very patriotic. You were serving your country to be a good athlete. Uh, and, and much like our Olympics today, uh, you were really patriotic in serving your country to represent your country athletically. That's because that was such an important part of the day's thinking. That's why the Bible often uses athletic terminology. It often uses the terminology of a race and, and just talking about um, athletic training. That's when we find that a lot throughout Scripture. Uh, it's just, it was a big deal. The tiredness, it is the tiredness over the length of the race that separates the runners. And if you think about a race and everybody lines up and the, the, the gun goes off, 
Everybody leaves, everybody leaves at the same time, and we're all even. We're all even. But the longer the race goes, the more distance and the more separate, the tiredness, see? I mean, just if we're just going to run from here to there, everybody can do that. But the longer the race goes, then that begins to separate people. That's why he uses the word, it's endurance. Hang in there, press on, lean toward the tape, go toward the end, continue to go. That's why the scripture says, as you run the race, run with all your might. Don't let weariness, don't let the length of the race take its toll on you. The writer of Hebrews combines two themes here in chapter 12, athletics, and we're going to look at citizenship as a major theme. Well, the reason he combines those is because you have to be a citizen to compete in the race that you are representing your country in. So it's, it's a good analogy here that, that we're looking at because to be a runner, to be in the race, you have to be a citizen. You have to be representing, and so it is our citizenship with God, it is our citizenship of the kingdom of God, it is our citizenship with heaven that puts us in running this race here on this earth. And so that is the analogy that we see running through much of Scripture, and especially here in chapter 12. In this chapter, we're going to see in verse 1 through 13, the writer of Hebrews is picturing the race. And then in 14 through verse 29, the writer will be emphasizing our citizenship in the heavenly city. So for the reader, these two themes go together because, as I said, nobody would take part in the games if he wasn't a citizenship. So these two run together. Uh, flip, hold your place there, and if you want to, go back over to Philippians. Uh, just a familiar passage, Philippians chapter 3, verse 12. I don't mean to say that I've already achieved these things or I've already reached perfection, but I press on to possess that perfection for which Christ Jesus first possessed me. No, dear brothers and sisters, I've not achieved it, but focus on this one thing. Forget the past, look forward to what lies ahead. Then here goes that analogy. I press on to reach the end of the race and receive the heavenly prize Everybody understood a race. Everybody understood receiving the prize. So you see the analogy here. So I, I press on to reach the end of the race, receive the heavenly prize for which God through Christ Jesus is calling us. So this is, a, this is not an uncommon theme here in chapter 12. Now I want to look in chapter 12 in, in three, um, three sections here. Chapter 12, verse 1 through 4. We want to see the example of the Son of God. Verse 5 through 13, I want to look at the assurance of God's love. The assur what is our assurance of God's love for us? And then I want to look in verse 14 through verse 29. And I, I, I've, I've tried to figure out a word here. The enablement of God's grace. What enables you and I to be partakers of God, God's grace? God's grace is free, but what, what does that hinge on for us to receive that? So I want to look at this. Let's get started here. Uh, verse 1, chapter 12. 
Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a huge cloud of witnesses to the life of faith, let us strip off every weight that slows us down, especially the sin that so easily trips us up. And let us run with endurance the race God has set before us. We do this by keeping our eyes on Jesus, the champion who initiates and perfects our faith. Because of the joy waiting him, he endured the cross, disregarding its shame. Now he is seated in the place of honor beside God's throne. Think of all the hostility he endured from sinful people. Then you won't become very weary and give up. After all, you've not yet given your lives in the struggle against sin. All right, three, three things that he says here to encourage us in this race. Verse 1 and 2, look at the winners. Verse 2 through 4, look at yourself. And then verse 2 through 4, look at Jesus. Now, let's, let's look at this. First of all, he starts out, look at the winners. Uh, I don't want to go back. Paul did a super job last week talking about the heroes of faith in chapter 11. So right here in verse 1, we are following up what Paul taught us last week when he talked about Abel and Enoch and Noah and Abraham. And my goodness, I would be here forever if I went all into. Remember Paul talking about that. Now, the word here, very interesting, I don't want you to miss this in verse 1, the word witness or witnesses, that word, and you don't, don't overlook that word, that is not spectators watching us. Now, the word spectators is not used there. A witness, witnesses are used there. And many read that as spectators, people watching us. To be a witness is to give by your life a testimony of what you've personally seen. Okay, did you get that? This isn't, oh, look at all these people watching us. No, 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 don't miss this. It's not a spectator. He used the word witness. What is a witness? A witness wasn't a spectator. A witness is one who's telling you what they personally saw, what they personally did. And, and so the point of this here in verse 1 is going back in all that Paul taught us in our last lesson and saying, all of these guys did it, so can I. So all of these people did it, so can I. So when you read chapter 11, it builds faith in your heart because they did it, I can do it too. And we know all these guys' imperfections and the way they messed up. And they weren't per far from perfect people, but look, they were considered people of great faith. And if they can do this, I can too. So you've got to look at the winners here in verse 11. Then you have to look at yourself. Now, and I, I would like to do a whole teaching on, on this because there, there, there's a whole, probably a couple of teachings in this verse because I want you to notice, he uses weights and sins. Now, I find that very interesting. He doesn't just say sins. We got the sin part. We know what sin is, and we know what the Bible says about sin, and we know we're not supposed to be sinning. We're, we're well aware of that. But sometimes we overlook the weights. Now, look what it does. Sin will trip you. See what it says? I mean, sin will... You'll trip you and fall flat on your face. Sin will take you out. That's what sin will do. But I think we don't catch oftentimes in life there are weights, and they don't trip you. What do they do? Slow you down. Slow you down. Not necessarily sin. You're not going to go to hell for doing this. 
I mean, it's not a sin. Well, show me the Bible where it's wrong. No, it's a weight. It's a weight. And, and for you, what is a weight in your life that's slowing you down? Now, I don't know what a weight is. I'm too much caffeine. I don't, I don't know. I, I mean, it's not a sin. It's not in the Bible. Boy, you're going to get a lightning bolt. But I'm just telling you, there are weights in your life that are slowing you down in running your race. Now, what are those? What are those? Hitting the snooze button every day instead of getting up? Having your time in the Word before you go to work? Having your time to exercise before you go to work? I don't know what it is. Well, show me in the Bible where it's wrong to hit the snooze button. Well, right here. It's, is that a weight that's slowing you down? See, we have weights, and I, I don't want to read over this. I, I, can't, I don't have time, and I just kept telling myself backstage, don't spend a lot of time on that. Move on. But I want you to know I want to spend a lot of time on this because it's very important. you got to get it off. We understand. We understand sin, but I'm just telling you there are personal weights that, that you have that you need to get those off. They're slowing you down. Look at, look at the winners that we talked about in chapter 11. Now, let's look at ourselves. What sin is tripping you up? What weight is slowing you down? And then number three, you got to look at Jesus. Verse two, you have to keep your eyes on Jesus. You have to keep, look what it is, keep your eyes on Jesus. Now, it's interesting here. Hold your place and go to Numbers. Numbers chapter 21. Let me read you. An event in the Old Testament. Numbers chapter 21. Find that and then go to John chapter 3 and hold that. Numbers chapter 21, verse 4. The people of Israel set out from Mount Or, taking the road to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. But the people grew impatient with the long journey, and they began to speak against God and Moses. Why have you brought us out of Egypt to die here in the wilderness, they complained. There's nothing to eat here and nothing to drink, and we hate this horrible manna. So the Lord sent poisonous snakes among the people, and many were bitten and died. Then the people came to Moses and cried out, We've sinned by speaking against the Lord. You reckon? Pray the Lord, take these snakes. Then the Lord told him, Make a replica of a poisonous snake and attach it to a pole. All who are bitten will live if they simply look at it. So Moses made a snake out of bronze and attached it to a pole. Then anyone who was bitten by a snake could look at the bronze snake and be healed. Now, as we've been talking about all through Hebrew, the old covenant, the tabernacle, what mom's going to be teaching about, all of this, well, that's kind of a weird story. Put a snake and up on a pole and everybody look at it. Everything you read in the Old Testament is a picture. It's a type of shadow. It is a mirror. It is an example. It is an illustration to get us to see life in the New Covenant. Now hold your place. Look at John, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, chapter 3. John, chapter 3, verse 14. And as Moses lifted up the bronze snake on the pole in the wilderness... See, had, had we not done that, had we not studied that, had the rabbis not taught on that for years and years and years, then you would not understand what Jesus... Look here. 
But it's just Jesus. What, you remember? You remember back in the wilderness? Remember Moses lifted up that bronze snake in the pole in the wilderness? That's what it's like. It's just like that. Jesus. Son of man is going to be lifted up so that everyone who believes in him will have eternal life. See, I have something to relate. See, all you can't learn calculus in the first grade because learning is built on previous knowledge. And so you can't, we could not learn about Jesus had we not had previous knowledge to build our knowledge on. So if Jesus, when Adam and Eve ate of the apple, sin brought sin in the world, and God just sent Jesus, it will be just like trying to teach calculus to our kindergarten. Why mess around with algebra and math and half algebra, half and geometry? Well, just forget all that. Why don't we just teach them calculus and we'll be ready to go? You can't learn calculus until you... And that's what the Old Testament does for us. It got mankind ready. So, okay, I don't understand Jesus at all. I, I don't mean I looked at Jesus. I, I'm supposed to keep my eyes on Jesus. I don't know. So what good is that? Everybody remember back in... I do remember that story. I remember Moses, I mean, that's been told for years. And when they looked up at that, then they weren't poor. I got it. So, I got, so that's what happens right here when he says, keep your eyes on Jesus. Here's what that means. Just like when Moses lifted up that serpent on that brass pole. Just like that, that's what you do. In the midst of your day when you've got poisonous snakes all around you, some of them are even biting you. Keep your eyes on Jesus. Keep your eyes on Jesus. Keep your eyes on Jesus. You get rid of the weight. You get rid of the sin. You run with endurance. And you keep your eyes on Jesus. How do we make it through the tough times? And I'm just telling you. Young people, the longer you live life, the more tough times you will endure. You know, and I, 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 I watch, and we all do, when our two- and three-year-olds fall down and skin their knee, and, I mean, life's just not worth living. They're, the, 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 they're just screaming and yelling in pain. And all you can think about is, if that's all you had to go through, you'd be in really good shape. <laughs> I went, but, you know, in their life, oh, it's just awful. The longer you live... The longer, the more years you live, the more death of loved ones you will experience, the more business crises that you will endure, the greater losses personally to you will happen, the more you're, you know, and, and when I like you, do you like me, check yes or no in the third grade, and the, no, the word, and it comes back, no, never. Well, okay, let me just say it, that's not going to be the only time you're crushed. That's not going to be the only time that your feelings, your emotions are just crushed to where you think you can't live. How do we do it? Y'all remember when Moses lifted up that brass serpent? Y'all remember when poisonous snakes bit? Let me tell you what happened. Let me tell you what. Now, we've been talking about that for several thousand years now. So when the writer of Hebrews comes and says, keep your eyes on Jesus, everybody knows exactly what that means. Everybody knows exactly what it means. Chapter 12 has given us three resources to encourage us as believers. Number one, remember the example of the Son of God. Keep your eyes on Him. Number two, verse 5 through 13 
is the assurance of God's love for us. Now, the key word in these verses is the word discipline, or some translations, chastising. This is a Greek word that means child training. And, and I don't, we, we just don't have a handle on discipline. We, we, parents, we don't have, you know, I'll discipline my kid. No, you have never disciplined your kid. Now, you beat them a lot. You yell a lot. But that's not child training. That's not discipline. So we've got a messed up idea and understanding of what discipline is even to begin with. This is a word that means child training. And when we are being disciplined... It is very easy to think that God does not love us. Now, the point of this whole section is, it is His love for us why He disciplines us. And that, that's the point of all of this that we're, we're looking at here in verse 5 through verse 13. If, and, and he quotes Proverbs 3 here, and, and here's what I want you, or here's what this section is trying to get you to see. Discipline is the assurance of God's love. How, well, I don't, even know, I don't even know how God, God loves me. I'm not sure if God... How do I know God loves me? Because He disciplines you. He disciplines you. I, I would be a lot stronger on my grandchildren than I would be some kid out here in the street that I don't even know. See, it's my love for them that does not want them to mess up or to grow up and be rude or to grow up and be mean or to grow up. See, my love for the out, see, and, and because we don't, we, because we've got discipline so fouled up because we had abusive parents and people that didn't, I mean, because we all fouled up in our society, this is hard for us to get a hold of. But you're going to have to understand what discipline really is supposed to be and what it means. And a discipline comes from a parent who loves you, that's why they're taking the time to do this. Why would a parent stop doing what they're doing and discipline you? Because they love you. If they did not care how you grew up, and they didn't care what became of you, then I wouldn't stop watching TV to get up and come over here and mess with you right now. Are you getting this? That is what the writer is trying to get us seeing, and just a lot of misunderstanding here. God corrects rebukes, disciplines the believer. Now, James chapter 1, verse 13 tells us that God cannot be tempted with evil, neither does He tempt any man. God does not cause temptation and crisis in people's lives. Those are caused by sin. Now, let me address a real mess up here in our thinking. Remember the word that we're using here, discipline, is child training. The parent, in training a child, spanks the child to teach them because they love him. A parent does not put cancer on a kid and kill him. Okay, follow, follow with me here. Follow with me. The parent does not see the kid out riding their bicycle and just take the car and run over their child to get their attention. The parent doesn't do that. God disciplines. He didn't get your attention by a car wreck. So don't be blaming God 
for the results of sin in a fallen world. Yes, God disciplines you and He does get your attention. But don't blame God. Well, God's just getting His attention. God didn't run over His kid in the car to get your attention. And we're blaming God for a lot of things that are the result of living in a fallen world where sin is. When a person, let me, let me tell you, when you get hit by a drunk driver, that's not God. That is the result of sin in a fallen world. And here's what you need to know. Teen Challenge, guys, you need to understand this. When you're living in sin, you're not only hurting you, you're hurting a lot of other people that didn't ask for this. It's my life, I can do what I want to do. Well, the little family driving down the road going to their grandmother's house didn't ask for that head-on collision that you just caused when you was drunk. You understand? When you are in sin, you hurt a lot of people that didn't ask for that, and you need to be aware of that. That's what sin causes in our life. And that's not God doing something to get your attention. Yes, God will spank you. God will discipline you to get your attention. But he didn't come over and run over you with a car. He didn't put cancer on you to get your attention. Now, you, you got to understand this. And, and once again, this, this, I think, is a big misunderstanding. Because we all well know people that had a life-and-death situation, and it turned their life around, and man, they're all out for God because of it. Well, it's easy to say, look what God did to get His attention. No, God took what was meant to destroy you. God didn't do that, but now God took what was meant to destroy your life, and He will use it for your good, but don't blame God for the results of sin in a fallen world. All right, now, <clears throat> verse, verse 5. Do not despise discipline. Some translations, do not regard lightly discipline. Too often, we pay too little attention to discipline. We brush off the correction from God. Oh, they deserve what I said to them. God taps you on the shoulders. Shouldn't have said that. Ah, they had it coming. Hold on now. Don't brush off God's discipline. Don't brush off God's trying to get your attention here. Don't brush that off with they had it coming or they deserved it or whatever. Verse 5. Don't, don't regard it lightly. Don't faint or some translation give up when disciplined. That word give up or lose heart or buckle under discipline. See, when the heat is turned up on you, don't go to pieces. Repent and change. Just God wants to bring you to repentance. Don't just fall apart, nor don't brush it off. He's tapping you on the shoulder. He's bringing some correction and discipline to you so that you can make some changes. I am sorry I did that. I'm sorry I said that. When the boss gets on you, don't bow up and get all mad. Your answer is, I'm sorry I did that. I will learn from my mistake, and I'll do better next time. But see, we don't learn from our mistakes. We cop an attitude. We get mad about what happened, and then we saw for months over what happened instead of simply repenting. I'm sorry. I'll learn from that, and I'll do better next time. Verse 6 and 7. Endure or take or receive the discipline of God. 
God receives us as his children. He spanks us. Why? Because he loves us because we are his children. Why does God want to discipline you? To keep you from hurting yourself. Why would I discipline my child? Because I know if they continue to act like that, then that's going to hurt them. That's going to cause them a job loss. I'm, all kinds of crises. So I discipline them to keep further hurt from their life. And that's what God wants to do. Don't take discipline lightly. Don't faint. Don't give up. Endure the discipline of God. And, and I guess the thing I want to say is learn from it. Benefit from the discipline that God brings your way. Too many just keep repeating the same mistake. And God brings some correction, and you go out and do it again, and God brings some correction, and you do it again, and God brings some correction. You, you don't keep going right on and doing the same thing. He's begging us to respond properly to the correction of the Lord. Verse 7 through 11, If a father is faithful, he disciplines the child. Why do we discipline? For the child's own good, for the child's well-being, for the child's happiness, for the child's success. Once again, we miss all that there is being taught to us because we have lost an understanding of discipline. Too many parents discipline because they're mad. And so you have been the brunt of a father or a mother jerking you up and thrashing you and hitting you and screaming at you and yelling at you and slamming doors. All they're doing is venting. That's not discipline. Proper discipline is for the child's good, not for the parent's time to vent. See, proper discipline is for the well-being of the child, not for the emotional release of some out-of-control parent. A parent disciplines because they love a kid, and that's God. That's how we can be assured that God loves us, because He disciplines us. To assure we are, verse 8, to assure we are God's kids. Verse 9, to save us. To, to really experience life. Verse 10, for our good, partakers of His holiness. Verse 11, so that we can bear the fruit of peace and righteousness. All of that is a result of God's love for us that causes Him to discipline us and make straight His path. Verse 12 and 13, the bottom line to, to, to all of this is we got to suck it up and get tough. We've got to make straight our path. You know, Paul told Timothy to stir up the gift in you. God told Joshua, be strong and courageous. Too, there are too many weak and emotionally feeble people out here. And this whole section is, you're not going to win the race if you're weak and feeble and faint and fall apart and shrink back and draw back. You'll never run the race. You're going to have to get tough if you're going to win this race. You're going to have to get tough and overcome the obstacles. All right, first of all, remember the example of Jesus. Secondly, the assurance of God's love for you. He loves you. He loves you. And you can know that because He disciplines you. The last one. The enablement 
of God's grace. And, and here is, here, here's the analogy, and we have such a hard time with the book of James understanding grace and works. We, we just have a hard time marrying those two in our mind. We just have it so either or when it's a combination of both. God's grace, and, and, and here was the example I, I thought of today. God's grace grows the seed. I was out in the rain and cold, and I was putting out hay um, for the cattle, and I was looking at our hay field where, where we cut the hay, and I thought, I, I didn't cause any of that to grow. I didn't cause any of that to grow. It, it was God's grace that grew that. But those cows wouldn't be getting any benefit if I hadn't sweated really, really hard this summer. Cut that, mowed that, raked that, baled that, stacked that. It, God's grace grew. See, God's grace grows the seed, but the farmer's got to plant the seed. And there is a working together with man and God for us to be able to receive God, yes, grace, yes, grace, yes, grace, undeserved favor, yes, grace. But there is a working together with, with man and God for us to receive and benefit from the grace he's given us. And then he goes into verse 14 through 17. Look through here with me. Follow down here. Practical. Here's what you do. To receive God's grace, you pursue peace with everybody. You pursue a holy life. I mean, give it all you got to live right before God. Don't fall short of the grace of God. How do you fall short of the grace of God? By not pursuing a holy life. Here's the grace of God out here, but you fell short of the grace of God because you weren't pursuing a holy life. God grew my crop, but had I not added to what God did, my cows wouldn't be eating it right now. See, it's a combination of you and God working together. Then he goes on. I mean, this is just one, two, threes. Don't let a root of bitterness. It'll cause you trouble. And I know people that have been bitter for 20 years. Just bitter. And they have allowed a root of bitterness to hinder the life they could be living right now. The life that they could be living right here. They let a root of bitterness destroy them. Verse 16, don't be immoral or godless. And then he uses the example of Esau here. Now, does God forgive us? Absolutely. But Esau still lost his birthright. And, and you got to get that example. He throws that word Esau in there. Did God forgive it? Well, sure, God will forgive you. But you can lose your birthright. And, and you got to know that. Verse 18 through 21, and he talks about you haven't come to the mountain. Don't let this be confusing. I don't have time to go back and reteach all that we have been talking about here. But the mountain was the symbol of the Old Covenant. 
You remember Moses went up on the mountain, received the commandments from God. Boy, you didn't go up there. People, the, the, they trembled in fear. They were terrified of going into the... See, when you have sin in your life, you are terrified from the presence of God. And you lived in... You lived terrified. You lived afraid all through the Old Covenant. And it wasn't until Jesus came that now we can go boldly, boldly into the presence of God without terror, without trembling, without being in fear. So here, he is, an, he is using the analogy of the Old Covenant and then transitioning us into the New Covenant. Verse 25 through 29. See to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking. When God is correcting you, when God is convicting you, change. Change and respond. Now, God's tapping you on the shoulder, and you just keep right on headlong doing what you're doing. Look what it says. You won't escape. You will not escape. If you continue to refuse the discipline of the Lord. Don't think when you have passed off God's discipline and gone on, don't think that God did, because He didn't. God didn't pass it off, and God did not go on. And then He talks about shaking things. And there is a shaking of things. And everything that God builds stands. See, there's a shaking of things. Your pride, your selfishness, your laziness, your irresponsibility, all of the things that are inside you, they fall. When that shaking takes place, those things fall, and only what God does in a person's life is what stands. And God is an all-consuming fire, and what is consumed is everything that He did not build. That's why it's very important that we're doing everything we can back to the Scripture. Boy, pursuing holiness, staying away from an immoral life, and allowing God's grace to be manifest in our own life. Lay aside the weights. Lay aside the sins. Run with endurance. And in all that we go through, keep your eyes on Jesus. I'll stand. Lord, we continue to submit our life to you, direct us, guide us as we focus, as we keep our eyes on you. Lord, that we pursue and we, we pursue and we pursue with endurance the race that is set before us. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast today. Our prayer is that you will experience Jesus in greater ways. If you would like to learn more about how to give to the ministry of CMC, please go to cmchurch.com giving. Thank you for listening today and God bless you.